Well, tonight, if you turn once again to the book of 2 Kings, so we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 16 through 37. We're kind of right in the middle of the story of Jehu. In fact, maybe the first little section here that we looked at last week, Jehu called to be a judgment on the house of Ahab or the house of Omri, of course, Omri being the father of Ahab. We're reminded that this family is a wicked family. It's not because all families have all wicked people in it. It just happens to be that Omri was described as a king that was more evil than all those that were before them. And then when Ahab becomes king, it tells us that Ahab was a king that was more evil than all the kings that were before him. In other words, this house was as wicked as can be. By this time, the scripture has now infected two kingdoms. Because not only do you have the kingdom of Israel that now has Joram or Jehoram as their king, one of the sons of Ahab after his brother, another son, Ahaziah, had passed on. But now... By marriage, you had the house of Judah also infected by this wickedness. So that now you have another king. His name also is Ahaziah. He is married into, uh, he is the, the son of a marriage into the family of Ahab. His father, King Joram of Judah, had been given a wife from the, from the line of Ahab uh, because of a marriage alliance that Jehoshaphat had made with the house of Ahab. And so here you have these two wicked kingdoms led by two evil kings, and God has now called Jehu to be the instrument of justice and judgment upon the kingdom of Israel. So follow along. This is the background. Now we come to verse 16, and Jehu is on the march. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let, let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around. And ride with me, ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman, who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu, and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be? so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many. Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders, so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember... 
when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagan. And Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel. The dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word as terrifying and horrible as these words sound to us in this modern 21st century. You have had these words written down for our benefit, that we might learn about Jesus. For, Lord, the entire Old Testament is about Christ in some way or fashion. Help us to learn from it, help us to grow from it, and help us to find in you peace and rest. And, Father, as we ponder these things, let our thoughts, our attitudes, my words, be consistent with your own, or else pass away with this judgment. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember one time when I was at General Assembly, I went to a seminar, and the seminar was on leadership. And in the leadership, there were some questions that were asked, what happens if you have a leader in your church, whether it's a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, or whoever it might be, who in one sense you know will block any progress in the gospel. You can't necessarily find any disciplinary action to take because there's no raw sin to deal with or no situation upon which to deal. And yet you know that this particular individual, either by his attitude or by the way he presents himself or perhaps by the decisions he makes or by other things, will stall the gospel, and particularly in the lives of those who enter the church for the first time. I remember someone asking a question in that fashion. And the speaker, who was someone who was very gifted and talented and had written books and articles on church leadership and on the importance, particularly in small churches, in which often leaders live for a lifetime in the same community, 
And upon that question, he said, well, sometimes you just have to wait for them to be promoted. And I thought about that, and I thought, wow, that's harsh. What he's saying there is, if you're called to the office of elder or deacon teaching, elder ruling, elder deacon, you're called to be that in that office as long as the Lord sees fit, in some cases as long as the rest of your life. What do you do when you have a leader that seems to lead you in all the wrong directions? What do you do in Israel's case when this leader is not just someone who may stop the gospel progress in your church, but someone who is wicked to the core and leads the nation in idolatry and sin? What do you do? Well, scriptures tell us we must, unless it is something that hinders us from submitting to the authority of God himself, we must submit to them. We must pray for them. We must seek to be good citizens under them. But what happens when God is going to use you as an instrument of justice and judgment? You see, Jehu's different than the ordinary individual. He's been told by God to strike the house of Ahab. This is not something in which he is to continue to submit to his master and his lord as general of the army. He has just been told earlier in the chapter that he has been anointed king and that he should strike at the house of Ahab. And so what does Jehu do? He starts out so well, doesn't he? We're going to find out what happens to Jehu in the next few sermons. But here it says here, Jehu mounted his chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Here are the circumstances. Joram had been injured in battle at Ramoth-Gilead. He is now in Jezreel for recuperation and recovery. His relative by marriage, King Ahaziah of Judah, is coming to visit, assumedly as his ally as well as his relative. And Jehu goes there to commence judgment according to God's purpose. So we have the fall here of three individuals in the house of Ahab, who we might call the heads of Ahab. The first fall is the fall of the son of Ahab, King Joram, or Jehoram, of Israel. Here are the circumstances. First of all, remember, Joram doesn't know this is coming. It's been prophesied from the days of Elijah a couple generations, or another generation before him, his father's generation. But here he does not know the circumstances. He does not believe in God. He does not trust the prophets of God. And so here he does not see what is coming. So he sends after the watchman, finds for him, or sees uh, him, Jehu, and this massive horde coming. The watchman reminds him of who it is by the end of this. But the watchman says this, I see a company or a horde or mass of soldiers as he's standing on the tower in Jezreel. So he's seen by the watchman here. Then what Joram does is he sends out messengers. The first messenger, he says, go out and meet him and find out if this is peace. Now you have to remember what the circumstances are. The army is camped at Ramoth-Gilead facing Syria. We don't get the impression that they're necessarily at that moment engaged in war. Jehu has just come out of a planning strategy meeting among the army intelligence and army officers 
when he was anointed by the prophet, the young prophet that Elisha sent, he was anointed to be king of Israel. Joram has no idea this has happened, so he sends this horseman out to assume that the messenger is coming for one of two or three reasons. He's either coming to announce victory at Ramoth Gilead, or he's coming to announce a disaster, defeat at Ramoth Gilead, or there's some other mysterious reason that this particular mass of soldiers is coming back to the king at Jezreel. So here is Jehu. He's seen by the watchman. He's joined by these two messengers. And each time the messenger would then ask from the king, is it peace? Because he wants to know, hey, is it good news or bad news? And so Joram answers, or Jehu answers in this rather strange and bizarre way. He says, what do you have to do with peace? Come and ride behind me. And in each case, the messenger comes and turns around and rides behind Jehu. Now, you might ask, why is he riding behind Jehu instead of beside him and all this? Assumedly, it's because Jehu is driving very quickly. And he falls in behind him. And then by the end of this little section, verse 20, the watchman reports, he reached them, this is the second messenger, but he's not coming back. The driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Now, this is kind of a silly thing, but I remember in seminary, we had a three-on-three basketball tournament every year that I was there, and they called it the Jehu Invitational. Because, of course, this is the place in Scripture where basketball is mentioned. They're driving down the lane furiously. Or you could mention that this is the driver, like someone you know, that drives furiously or madly down the road. But the idea here is there was something distinctive about Jehu's driving, and this watchman knew it, and he was able to discern who the person was, much to his probably uh, very... Uh, positive sense of importance here, I think this is Jehu. And so Joram has his own chariot readied, and Ahaziah as well, and it says in verse 21, they made ready his chariot, then Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu. And again, here is the understanding, they don't know what's coming, that he doesn't have any clue that Jehu at this point in time is now his enemy. As far as he knows, he's still the general of the army. So he goes out to meet him, puzzled, wondering what it means that these two messengers have come with him, and Jehu is madly pursuing uh, the city of Jezreel. And it tells us a little future event here by saying this is where they met at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now, that may not mean much to you unless you know your history from 1 Kings. Ahab, the father of Joram, as we know from Scripture, he had a design on a vineyard that Naboth owned. And he couldn't do anything about it because Naboth didn't want to sell him his vineyard. And so Ahab lay in his bed, moaning and groaning, because he wanted that vineyard, and Naboth would not sell it to him. And Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the queen, said, Who are you anyway? Aren't you the king? 
If you're the king, then you should go out and get it for yourself. So she had some messengers go and raise up some foolish people to claim that Naboth was blaspheming God to the extent that in that meeting, these witnesses convinced the others at that meal that Naboth was blaspheming God. They took Naboth out and stoned him to death for the sin of blasphemy. An innocent person killed. And so this property of Naboth the Jezreelite is that same property that contained that vineyard. And here it is that Joram, the son of Ahab, is meeting Jehu, the agent here of God. First of all, where he's described as a driving madman. But secondly, we know he's a driven agent of the Lord. He is intent not only on carrying out God's judgment, but doing it quickly and doing it concisely. And verse 22 gives us this very picturesque scene. Here they are on this piece of property that his father has acquired by the death of an innocent man. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? In other words, what's going on, Jehu? Why are you coming to meet me? And Jehu answers thusly, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Isn't this the heart of the issue? He says there can be no peace in a land of idolatry. That's what the whorings means here. It's not just the immorality that takes place in a country of wickedness. Here it's a reference to the Baals and the Ashtaroths that were introduced into Israel, particularly under Jezebel, the Sidonian princess who was married to Ahab by a military alliance. And here it is that she has helped introduce to her husband and to all the nation Baal worship so that they began to build these altars to Baal throughout the land. And Jehu says, as long as this idolatry exists, how can there be peace? But he not only says this, he says also there's no peace in a land where Jezebel resides. Remember, this is here, the mother of Joram. Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, treachery, O Ahaziah. Jehu drew his bow with full strength, shot Joram between the shoulders, so the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. You see, judgment will find its mark, won't it? And Jehu was prompted by this to remember. Jehu probably, when he was traveling from Ramoth Gilead to Jezreel, was not thinking about the property of Naboth. He was driving madly to encounter this king that he was supposed to strike. And as he's traveling upon the way, by circumstance, or what we might say by God's providence, they happen to meet on this field. And Jehu looks at his aide-de-camp by the name of Bidkar, and he says to him, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite, for remember, remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As these circumstances took place, Jehu remembered the very prophecy of Elijah who prophesied that on that piece of property that Naboth owned, that vineyard that Ahab and Jezebel had stolen from him and his family, that this prophecy was made. 
As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Judgment will make its mark. You know, there's new information that's here. It's kind of interesting. In 1 Kings, we're never told that the sons of Naboth were also killed. But evidently, Jehu, having been an eyewitness to these events, recognized that Jezebel also had these sons killed. So it's not just an innocent man that was killed. An entire family and their inheritance was taken away from them as they were murdered so that Ahab could have a vineyard that he liked better than his own gardens. What terrible wickedness. What do we make of all this? What do we do with this kind of story, which is just so awful? Joram was a terrible king, wicked to the core. His father was a terrible king. He was wicked to the core. His grandfather, Omri, reminded us that, that there was wickedness throughout Israel by this point. And God pronounced judgment on them. This was the time. You know, we're told in Scripture in the New Testament that there will be people in the church who will say, you know, you guys talk about Jesus coming back. And you say that judgment is coming, but every day looks the same. Sun rises in the morning. I go about my activities. Nothing seems to happen. How can you be sure after all this time that God's judgment will really come? And, of course, Peter writes the famous words. He says, to the Lord in these circumstances, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. But be sure. God is not slow in carrying out his judgment. He may be slow in your eyes, but not in his eyes. Here it was. They were now waiting for Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, now Joram. Finally, judgment has come. God's judgment will come just as he said it would. That's what we learn from this passage. God's judgment will come just as he said it would. Not only on Joram, but also on other members of the house of Ahab. Verses 27 to 29 show how Jehu turned his attention to Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Reminder, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen, wherever that is, I don't know, on the map. Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Iblium. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. It's kind of interesting when 2 Chronicles gives us these events. It reminds us that, in fact, Ahaziah actually began to hide somewhere in Samaria. And then he was brought back to Ahaziah. So he was shot and injured. Then he was brought back and Jehu had him killed. That seems to be what took place here. What about this man, Ahaziah, king of Judah? Well, because his mother was Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, he is the grandson of Ahab. It tells us that he only reigned for one year. But it was a year in the way of Ahab's house. That's how it describes it in the scriptures. He walked in the way of Ahab's house. What is this way? It's walking in evil. Walking in evil. Not just seeing evil, not just putting up and tolerate, putting up with and tolerating evil, but it's actually walking in evil. 
And so then when he's visiting his ally and close relative here, the king of Israel in the north, is he caught in the crossfire? I say no. In fact, Jehu singled him out. Shoot him too. Why? What did Jehu have to do with the house of Judah? What did he have to do with, with this other kingdom when he was told to be the king of Israel? Well, he knew the relationships. He knew that this man, too, was morally and spiritually of the house of Ahab. And he singled out Jehu, and Jehu had a drawn-out death. He didn't die as fast as his brother-in-law or whoever he was, Joram. In fact, here it was reminded by us in Scripture here in this passage, it says his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. But in 2 Chronicles, it tells us this. For the sake of Jehoshaphat, his paternal grandfather, he was buried. In other words, because he walked in the ways of Ahab, he was considered such an awful king that they would have considered not burying him in the tombs of the kings of Judah. But because of his grandfather... Because Jehoshaphat was a man who sought the Lord, even though he sinned in his ally with Israel in the north, with Ahab's family, yet he sought the Lord. And because of that, by grace, then the people decided to bury the grandson of Ahab, King Ahaziah, on his death. Again, what do we learn about this particular event in the life of God's people? You know, it's interesting as we think about our associations. We, we've looked over the last uh, few weeks as we go through Second Kings of how important it is who we ally ourselves with, who it is that we associate with in a very close fashion. And we're reminded if we choose to marry an unbeliever, if we choose to partner in business with an unbeliever, if we choose to do all kinds of things in a very close association with unbelievers, there are consequences to that. Jehoshaphat did that. And because of that, his whole family became tainted by the influences of ungodly men in the, land, in the, the family of Ahab. And we're reminded, not even children of the godly will escape God's punishment without faith. This is hard. I'm a parent. I have three children. They're getting to that point where they're now going off on their own. And sometimes people will ask me, well, how are they? And, of course, sometimes I can say, and sometimes I can't say, I don't know what they're doing out in different places in the country. Sometimes I don't even know what Xander's doing in school, just a few miles away. I don't know what their heart is really like. I think I know when I'm with them and I see their lives and I see the fruit of either their faith or lack of faith. And yet we're reminded that just because I have faith does not mean they will escape God's judgment and have faith themselves. You see, God will judge all the people on the earth for either their faith or their lack thereof. But perhaps the most troubling head of this family was a woman, wasn't she? Jezebel. In fact, now, how many people do you know name their child Jezebel? Very few. It says, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. 
So here is the fall of the wife of Ahab, Queen Jezebel. She's outlived her husband. She's outlived now two sons. Now it's her turn. Why did she do that? Why did she paint her eyes? In fact, it even tells us what kind of paint it was. It was this black paint that makes it look kind of metallic looking and so forth along the eyes, makes her look younger. She adorns her head, that is, she fixes her hairstyle and all that kind of stuff, and she dresses for the occasion, doesn't she? Why did she dress for the occasion in this gaudy presentation of her body? Why paint her eyes, put on makeup, fix her hair, probably assumedly she's also dressed in nice clothes here. Why did she do that? It wasn't to try and sway Jehu by her good looks to come in and be the next king of the harem. No. She says this, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? This is ungodly defiance. She won't recognize that she deserves what she gets. She's dressed up to, by her last breath, defy God, defy his agent of judgment, and defy everything about the God of Israel. She dresses up and she asks that, if you remember the history, Zimri was another one who had murdered or assassinated the king of Israel and reigned for just a short time. Perhaps she's even getting in her last little punch by saying, Jehu, if you kill me and kill this house, you only have a short reign. But whatever it is, she is defiant to the end. So Jehu looks up to the window in the tower. He says, who is on my side? This reminds us she is despised by this household. There are two or three eunuchs. doesn't tell us their names. doesn't tell us who they are. And, of course, if you know what a eunuch is, this is someone who was castrated to serve in the harem of a pagan king. And so in this circumstance, they had made these individuals so that they were not allowed to approach the altar of God because of their condition. They were eunuchs who had been used in this sense. They were to be loyal in the household. They were to oversee these things. And because of their condition, they could not act on certain impulses and so forth. And so these eunuchs, in her eyes, would have betrayed her. And they took her and they threw her out the window. This is very graphic. As she's thrown out the window, her blood spatters on the wall, and horses trample on her. It's a bloody death. Terrible. But she's destroyed according to prophecy. Jehu, you wonder, how can he go in and just sit down to meal? I mean, it just sounds bizarre to us. But it's this recognition. At this point, Jehu realizes he's carried out his mission probably tired and hungry. It's over. As he sits down to eat his dinner, there's another dinner for the dogs. An afterthought comes to his mind as he's eating and drinking. He says, see now to this cursed woman, recognition of who she is in God's eyes, and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. This is really against the prophecy that was given. But they go out to find her and bury her, but they can only find certain bones her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. When they came back, Jehu remembered this prophecy. 
This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say this is Jezebel. She is dinner for the dogs and dung in the field. Again, terrible stuff. You know, here I am, I, I thought as I came up here, I'm preaching this sermon in front of poinsettias that are celebrating the birth of Christ. What, what, is, what does this teach us? It teaches us that God's judgment will reach even the most godless who seem to outlive everybody else. Sometimes there are people who live in the world and they spend an entire lifetime under the rule of a despotic ruler, someone who's wicked and evil. Sometimes churches in a generation have leaders that will lead them away from God's word and away from the truth of scripture and away from the truth that apart from Christ there's no hope of salvation. But judgment will come. How do we respond to such judgment? First of all, we respond with fear for ourselves, a fear that leads to repentance. Secondly, we respond with fear for others. Reminder that every person we encounter is going one of two places. To be with our Lord Jesus Christ who will come back to us one day or who will go to judgment. And we pray that they too might repent and be saved. But strangely, scripture reminds us that there are times when we respond to judgment with joy. Proverbs 11.10 that's printed in your bulletin somewhere on this mess. It says this. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Psalm 58.10 says the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. What horrible things to say in our 21st century ears. But this is a reminder. God's word is true and reliable. He will judge those who are wicked and refuse to repent from their sins, but he also will save his people from their sins. Even the horrible word on judgment is true, but this means also God's promise of protecting his people and saving them is also true. What a reminder that even though the wicked rulers of this world, even the wicked ruler of our own country right now, in this point in time, even this individual will, unless he comes to faith, be judged by God. It doesn't matter what party he's from. It doesn't matter what his background is. It doesn't matter what his accomplishments are throughout history. It doesn't matter even what his parents believed or any of those things. He too will come before a holy God who will judge him based on faith or lack thereof. At the same time, who is our ruler? Is it our president or is it the king, Jesus Christ, who is the righteous king, who will never be judged, but has taken our judgment upon himself? A horrible judgment that we deserve, much like Joram and Ahaziah and Jezebel have turned our backs on the Lord, and yet by his grace he has called us to himself that we might trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the king that came those many years ago. 
born in a manger. We thank you, Lord, that this king shall always reign, even when the leaders of this world seem so wicked, seem to take joy in the downfall of the righteous. But Lord, your judgment will come. Your word is true. Help us to place our trust in you. In Jesus' name.